Well, good morning, Willow Burn. How are we doing? Not too cold this morning. So this morning we're kicking off with our minor series. We've been on our mega series. This is our minor series. You might have noticed in the life of the church over the last five or six years, it wasn't necessarily planned out, but we sort of have a big series running, whether it was John or Revelation. Now it's our mega series. And then we tended to have these seven parters. So, you know, we had the seven part King and Kingdom series. We had the seven part um, Spectacular Divine Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. So this is our uh, seven-part 2018 mini-series, which will hopefully complement nicely our mega-series, and I've called it Above and Beyond. So today we begin our Above and Beyond series. For the rest of the year, we'll just splice in some of these sessions. This is the first one of seven, and I'm sure you would have heard the term Above and Beyond before. Maybe you've heard it said, hey, of yourself, you went above, what's that? Yeah, Buzz Light, yeah, to infinity and beyond. I wasn't actually thinking of Buzz, but thank you, Camille. I can say you're doing some above and beyond service in the crèche there today. Well done. Uh, so when we say above and beyond, particularly in the military, we're saying you actually went above and beyond the call of duty. The call of duty involves some sort of obligation, and you went way beyond it. You went way above it. Or an expectation in society of something and some standard, and you just go above and beyond. It means in excess of expectations or demands of duty or of obligation. And so I started thinking about the Bible and I started thinking about my knowledge of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, the very kind of well, the fantastic stories of God and of Jesus and of his followers in the Bible. And over and over again, you know what I saw? Above and beyond. Above and beyond. Like, I mean, you think about all the stuff that happens in Acts. You've got these people that are going above and beyond what society would ever expect in terms of their love, in terms of their joy, in terms of their determination and so forth. You know, that, that lecture series that from John Dixon about the church being far worse and far better than you ever expected. Go back and see how it was far better than what you ever expected back in the first 300 years of the church where the church is just this persecuted minority and within 300 years without raising a sword without raising an army the whole roman empire is transformed that's above and beyond above and beyond and then i started to think well i like to dream a bit i, I like to dream i like to daydream i like to imagine what willow burn would be like if it was an above and beyond church and i see little glimmers of that you know but we've got to be realistic. We've got to be realistic. Only small church. We've got, you know, people that are, as Luke already pointed out, a bit dysfunctional at times, a bit broken. We need the Lord Jesus. But at the same time, we serve this magnificent God. We know that in the past, the church has been above and beyond. So why not again today in 2018? Why not you? Why not me above and beyond? Above and beyond. That's my little dream. And so I thought of these sort of seven characteristics i guess above and beyond the first one that we're going to cover today is above and beyond in our allegiance imagine if willowburn church in 2018 was above and beyond in its allegiance to christ in its allegiance to jesus what if it was above and beyond in terms of its love in terms of our love for god our love for each other what if it was above and beyond in terms of our sincerity isn't sincerity something that you need, that the world needs? You know, so much facade and pretense and manipulation, screens that tell you this, that, and the other thing. Imagine if we were above and beyond in our sincerity. 
How about this one? In all, in terms of all those things, so allegiance, love, sincerity, imagine if there was real power in that. Imagine if we were above and beyond in our power. We're going to look at the power of God within us. We're going to look at the gifts that he gives us, gifts of power, and what that actually means. What if we were above and beyond in our mateship? Typically in the Bible, that's called unity or oneness. In Australia, we like to talk of it in terms of mateship. Imagine if this church was above and beyond in terms of our mateship, in terms of the way we look after each other. And then in determination. If you're going to be above and beyond, you're going to need determination. And then finally, imagine if we were above and beyond in our growth. Imagine that. So that's going to be our mini-series. Imagine that, a Willowburn church, you, me, our families, our friends, above and beyond in our allegiance, our love, our sincerity, our mateship, our power, our determination and growth. And I'm not just talking numerical growth, I'm talking growth yourself that you can see, that you can look back over a year, two years, five years and go, I am not the same as what I was. I'm so much more like you now, Jesus. So today, though, we're just going to start off with allegiance. I wanted to talk about allegiance. It's one of those words that stands alone, isn't it? You know, it's one of those, it's almost like a power word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word you put out there. Just, you just say allegiance. Doesn't it sound good? Allegiance. It, it almost has its own history with it before you even put it into context. Allegiance. Imagine a, a church of allegiance. Interestingly, Andrew Martin told me the other day that the Spanish word for allegiance is lealtad. Did I say that right? Probably not. Where is he? He's gone. Oh, there he is. Lealtad, which is lee, the, out to the altitude, to the heights. So allegiance in Spanish, lealtad, to the, to, to the uppermost heights is my allegiance. Allegiance to high altitude. That's what we see in the early church. That's what we see through the, the scriptures in Acts after these Christians are so inspired. Their allegiance is high altitude, their faith their commitment, their devotion to their Lord is high altitude. There's nothing above it. Nothing. So we could do this in a number of ways. We could talk about our allegiance to Christ as, you know, as I already have intimated, being above all others. can try and G you up a bit. Maybe make you feel guilty about your allegiance to other things. But I'm just going to use these words. I'm going to get right into it. I'm just going to shock you. I'm just going to shock you. Because sometimes we read the Bible and we think we're, you know, we're, well, we don't think, we're reading of God and of Jesus, and it's almost like we expect it to be tame. It's almost like we can just get in there, we can come in there with all our paradigms, our pre-understandings, our frameworks of understanding, our assumptions, and not be provoked, and not be convicted, and not be challenged. And then all of a sudden, you come to a certain passage in the scripture, and it just kind of goes like a, like a spear, like a big heavy-duty spear. It just punctures all those assumptions. It punctures your comfort, and it provokes. It gets in your face. And this is one of those verses. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate. Uh-oh. <laughs> Who says this? Jesus says it a few times, actually, in the scriptures. So if we're going to talk about allegiance today, I want to talk about the way Jesus did. And so I want to start with this in-your-face quote from Jesus. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate. Maybe it's like hate evil. We should hate evil, shouldn't we? We should hate injustice. Yeah? Is it though? No? Nadine's shaking her head. Do, you know, do we know what the next bit is? Do we, know, do we know what Jesus says? 
If you want to be allegiant, if you want to have allegiance to me, if you want to be my disciple, discipleship is just allegiance. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate. Well, let's read it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So that's in Luke 14. I'll get you to turn there now. Luke 14, verse 26. I'll read it again. You know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but you get to a verse like this and because it is so provocative and because it is such in, so in your face, I mean, like, what? Love, hate Kerry? Hate my, my daughters who are very precious to me? So he's saying, if I don't hate them, I, I can't be your disciple, Lord. Is that troubling to you guys? So what do you normally do? Like, what do you normally do when you get to a passage like that? There's a few options. You can just sort of skim past it, maybe pick up a commentary. I'd really encourage you when you come to passages like this to actually pause, sila, think deeply about it. Because if Jesus is saying something in a particular way, he wants to get our attention. Jesus is very clever. He knows we are easily distracted by the things of the world. We're easily, in our hearts, very fickle. We're easily kind of, I don't know, just blasé, apathetic. He knows that from week to week, our kingdom sensitivities, our kingdom sensibilities, our kingdom culture wanes. It's entropic. It wanes. It ebbs and flows. No one in this room is 100% committed to Jesus throughout the week all the time, are they? If you are, put your hand up. There are things that happen. You know it in your heart. There are things that happen. And when those things happen, your convictions, your commitment tends to wane. Jesus is so clever. He knows that. That's why coming together like this, hearing the word, being in the word regularly is such an important thing. It is literally food for your soul. It literally reinvigorates your kingdom conscience. It reinvigorates your kingdom sensibilities. And sometimes Jesus really has to slap us around the face, in a sense, a bit like last week. He has to crash tackle us as we run towards the cliff face to get our attention. So before we too quickly reword this or recontextualize it or harken back to an earlier understanding, what I really want to do today is just, just let that sink. Let, let, let the impact be felt in your heart and in your spirit from these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own life, you cannot be my disciple. What kind of allegiance is this? What, what, I mean, if, if Malcolm Turnbull said that to you, you can't be a citizen of Australia unless you hate your family. What would you say to Malcolm Turnbull, even if you don't vote Liberal, or even if you do? Get stuff, mate. You know, in our society, family is the highest allegiance that you can have. So I just want to quickly do some hermeneutics with you. Hermeneutics is a bit of a specialty area that I'm involved in at the moment, and it involves interpretation. So interpretation, just read you something, okay? Read you some words. The words have syntax and grammar. The words have history. They have context. But you also come as a reader. You have your own culture, your own history. There's also the world um, that the author lived in. So when he used words in a certain way, 
people in that world, in that history, understood them to mean certain things. And so a lot of hermeneutes, theoreticians, have come up with this little concept of the world of the text, which is just the words and how they go together. Then there's the world behind the text, which is how it was originally written. And then there's the world in front of the text, which is you, the reader. And all those things are coming together to bring about understanding, to bring about application. That's interpretation. And we need to be aware that with any part of the Bible, it's not just the world of the text, right? It's your world. It interacts. It can change the way that you, you read this, the way that you understand and apply it. If you get some of the words wrong in terms of their original intent, the world behind the text, you don't understand the world behind the text, you can also get the understanding wrong. And so oftentimes we come to the word with pre-understanding. The reason this troubles us so much is because our pre-understanding involves a loyalty and allegiance to our family and a love to our family. And it's not like God has just, and Jesus has used the term, just love me more than your family. We could, we'd probably be more comfortable with that. He actually says, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to hate. So there's a clash and we're uncomfortable. But imagine this, just, just for a moment, I'm not saying this is what the text is saying, but just imagine this for a moment. You've been cruelly treated by your family. Your family's been vicious to you. You've been beat up, abused in all sorts of horrible ways. How will you read this text? You probably, you probably go, good on you, Jesus. See how our pre-understanding has suddenly changed the way we feel about this text? So we should always be careful when we read the Bible. We should, again, we so need the Holy Spirit, don't we, to say, Lord, help me. I'm coming with my pre-understanding. I'm coming with all this. I just want to be open before you. I want to be humble. I want to understand. There's more going on here, though. There's more going on than just your pre-understanding. Some scholars will talk about idioms, idiomatic. So idioms in English, so you thought you, you didn't know you were coming to get a literary kind of thing today, but I just thought it'd be good just to talk about how we read. Okay. So when we talk about idiomatic language, you know, we're talking about things that occur in language, a bit sort of, you know, a bit like slang, but oftentimes they can be more than that. Like you're a dirty dog. You're not really a dog with four legs. It's more idiomatic to say, hey, you're not a very nice individual. We have all sorts of them in Australia, don't we? Well, in this particular verse, what if I told you that hate in the Bible can sometimes simply be idiomatic for not chosen for a particular person, a purpose? So remember the famous verse, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. If you read that in context in Romans 9 and you see what it's actually referring to, you will see that it is actually God talking about choosing Jacob out of that lineage to bring the good seed, to bring the Lord Jesus into the world. Esau's not chosen. It's not that Esau is unloved, it's idiomatic language to say God's um, electing purpose to bring Jesus into the world is put onto Jacob. Idiomatic language. And so here we could possibly say that Jesus is saying, you need to choose me over your family. And I think it does mean that, but I think it means a lot more. There's a lot more going on. So let's play the Zoom game. The Zoom game. Are you in that passage? Are you in Luke 14, 25, 26 sort of area? Yep. Let's go wide. A bit like a game of footy. Go wide. Go wide. We're going to keep going wide. So here's our passage. Just got it up there on the screen. 
Luke 14, 26. But what do you notice is in the flow of the text? So when I say the flow of the text, what's before it and what's after it? Because Luke has put this here for a very specific reason. And you can actually get a really good understanding of the world behind the text by reading more of that flow and trying to go, okay, Luke, what are you doing here, Luke? We know Luke is trying to present in a case to Theophilus. Theophilus is this dude that he's writing the account of the gospel of Jesus for. And all of it is so that, you know, the, that Luke will come to understand that what he's learned isn't rubbish. So Luke's very keen to make sure Theophilus, probably a Greek guy, probably a rich Greek guy, really gets this. That's the big, big picture. But if we zoom out, what do we see? I'm not sure how well that comes up. We see that just before is the parable of what? The great banquet. It's a famous parable by Jesus, isn't it? The great banquet. You know, Jesus talks about in the banquet inviting many guests. He says a certain man's preparing a great banquet and he invites many guests. He sends the servants out. In verse 18 there of, uh, of Luke 14. But what happens? He sends people out. They've all got other allegiances. So in verse 18, they all begin to make excuses. I've just brought a field. Now, a field in those days requires tending to it, requires work. This guy's a workaholic. He, well, I don't know if he's a workaholic, but he's working hard. He needs to, that's a reasonable excuse. I can't come. I need to get this field going because I need to feed my family. Another says, I've just brought five yoke of oxen. Again, that's someone's work, their livelihood, their property. Yet another says, I am getting married. Family. So all of these people have allegiances to their property, to their possessions, to their family. And so what does the rich man say? He says, go out, go out into the streets and the alleys, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And and the servant in verse 22 says, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then verse 23 The master tells his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I love that. I love that. And then he says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is just a simple, practical parable that says, if your allegiances are to other things, you're not going to come to the banquet. You're not going to want to come to the banquet. And this is a life-giving banquet. You know, in the broader kingdom sense, this is a life-giving banquet. This is exactly what they need. Their field is not going to give them exactly what they need. Their family is not going to give them exactly what they need. They need everlasting life. That's what they really need. And these other loves are getting in the way of that. Why won't they get a taste? Because the field gets in the way of the invite. Work gets in the way of the invite. Marriage gets in the way of the invite. Competing allegiances. Jesus is saying, you don't just get to speak allegiance. You have to live it. Your allegiance will be read by your actions. Think about the kids. It's so awesome. We've got little babies and stuff in the church and little kids that grow up. Think about your kids. who Parents, think about your kids. Do they listen to your words as much as they watch what you do? So too, in this situation, your allegiance will be seen by what you do. And human allegiance is just so fickle, isn't it? This parable of the great banquet is property, work, family. They're all allegiances. They compete and they get in the way of this allegiance of the banquet. 
So now when we come back to our verse, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, he's sort of starting to get a bit of a picture now. It's Jesus is saying all these other things, if they get in the way and they compete, then you're not going to come to the banquet. You're not going to want to. And you have to understand as well, all through the scripture, Jesus has been promising what? He's been preaching the kingdom coming. A new order is coming. He's preaching repent. He's repeaching turn. If you want everlasting life, if you don't want to go into the grave, if you want to know me, then turn, repent, change. And all the time there's these like interferences, these allegiances to other things. And so the banquet to my mind is all about the people saying, you know what? Even though my life is degrading, entropic, wrinkling, fading, this, this field here, it's not going to last. These cattle are not going to last. My family's not going to last. I want them first. I want them first. And Jesus is saying, whack. Whack. Stop that. That is so silly. Choose life. And it's the same thing for you now in 2018. It's the same thing for your friends. But I think there's still more going on. Because when we look in the scriptures and we go even wider, we actually see that this verse is talked about in other parts of the Bible. So, for example, in Matthew, we see it again. And we know that there's an overlap there because if you look at 27 in Luke 14, it says, And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, follow Jesus where? To the cross. So make no mistake, this is not some dictatorial king asking you for 100% allegiance to some dictatorial cause. This is the Lord Jesus. Literally, as he speaks these words, he is on his way to Jerusalem to die. You don't hate your father, your mother, your children, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life. If you don't deny yourself, carry a cross, you can't be my disciple. If we zoom out, we actually see in Matthew 10. Now don't jump over there because I'm only going to be here very briefly, but we see it again. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the parallel passage. And what we find there is Jesus says, brother, betraying brother to death. This is what he's sort of come to bring to the, to the planet. Brother betraying brother. Father, his child. Children rebelling against their parents. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, he's actually quoting from Micah there. And in Micah, that passage is all about judgment. So the people of Israel have turned away from God. Terrible things are happening. They're sacrificing their own children. They're sacrificing to these weird, um, ugly idols that demand all sorts of things from them. And God is calling, calling over and over again. And in the end, judgment comes. And in that judgment uh, people begin, brothers turn against brothers, brothers turn against um, sisters, sons turn against fathers, fathers turn against um, their sons, and so on. And then in that verse, he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter or me more, more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then he quotes, from Micah. And the end of Micah, it says, of that passage, it says, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. So the picture you have there is all this betrayal going on. And Jesus is saying, Do not do that. Do not do that. Do not fall short. Do not 
step away from me, your allegiance to me, your allegiance to me must be above all that. You're in that time of judgment, your father, your mother may want to turn you away. Do not do that. Do not follow them. So again, now pre-understanding has sort of changed to this passage. It's not just talking necessarily about a nice, cushy family life. It's talking about a family that may well, through their own choices, turn away. If they were to turn away, what will you do? And they say, you must turn away. You know, Christians coming out of Islam face this choice every single time they decide to follow Jesus. Every time. And Jesus doesn't hold back. He says, no, follow me. It's so easy for us here, isn't it? But what if it wasn't? How real is your faith, really? How real is your allegiance? Do you know that one important component of faith that is rarely talked about anymore in our society in terms of the meaning of the word faith? You know what it is? It's trust, dependence, but there's a third, third meaning, allegiance. If you were faithful to a king in Roman times, that meant you pledged allegiance to him, not just that you were trusting in him or depending on him in this whimsical kind of way. It meant that you were an allegiant. So when we say the righteous shall live by faith, we could easily say the righteous shall live by allegiance, by allegiance. When Jesus comes, motivations are laid clear. A cost is called for. We are told to look to him, count the cost, and to pledge our allegiance to him above all other things. But that's not all that Jesus is saying here, is it? And I just want to launch into this next little bit by saying, is your allegiance, your allegiance to your family, to your property, to whatever, to each other, is your allegiance returnable? So let's say you've got allegiance to your father, to your mother, etc. And they're awesome. But is it returnable? Will that allegiance be given back to you 100% reliably? Will it ever fail you? I don't, even, I don't even need to answer it, do I? We know it will fail. It's actually quite conditional. I mean, can you imagine if, say your son or daughter or your brother or sister just started starting acting up, started doing all sorts of weird things against you, started being mean to you, started becoming bitter, tried to get all your property, tried to sleep with your wife, tried to do all sorts of things. Would you maintain your allegiance to them? I don't think so. And you would probably have to in many ways withdraw to protect yourself and your family. Is your allegiance returnable? Is your allegiance reliable? So your allegiance... Um, that, that, that you're giving out, is it reliable? Because it's not going to be returned to you by those people when that happens. Or if you're the one that's doing it, it's not going to be returned to you. And what I'm trying to get at there is, no, your allegiance is not returnable. It's not reliable. Your allegiance is actually quite fickle. It is subject to human conditions. Now consider the allegiance of God for a moment, okay? And we're going to play the Zoom game again. So we zoomed in to look at the, we zoomed out to look at the flow of text and I said, what's before? Well, what's after? What do we see is after this, these sort of verses that Jesus is talking about, you must hate your family if you want to be my disciple. Can you see it there? Zoom in again. Parable of the lost sheep. So he, he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to hate your mother, father, had the great banquet before. Then he talks about count the cost, talks about the famous tower, you know, 
what kind of builder goes to build a tower and gets halfway through and stops it and then you've got this edifice to failure. So he's saying, count the cost when you want to follow me. And then he launches straight into the parables of lostness, the parable of the lost sheep. Well, what is that? Is that not Jesus showing his allegiance to that lost sheep that has run away? Our allegiance isn't like that. If someone runs away and they go off and they betray us or whatever, generally we'll let them go. Then there's the parable of the lost coin. Then there's the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. You know, in the parable of a lost coin, it's the allegiance of the woman to a lost coin. I love that verse there. And then Jesus quickly shows this isn't just about a coin, because in verse 10, he says, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over God, of God, over one sinner who repents. So this is talking about a sinner, talking about someone who repents, someone who that, that was lost and, and is now found. And then we get to the parable of the lost son. And it's allegiance of the father to the son. But do you notice the type of allegiance that he has? I mean, remember already, you've got the great banquet. It's not like a king uh, in Roman times who's demanding soldiers come into his servants and, and pledge allegiance. This is Jesus saying, come to a banquet. He flips it all around. It's like a king saying, come to a banquet. And now he flips it around. And he goes, well, here's this father. And you know the story. Remember, here's this father. And the son comes to him and says, basically, I want your, your, your money. In, in some commentators would say, I want you dead so I can get the inheritance. So this is not just a wayward son. This is a treacherous son. And the son goes off, wild partying. And he comes back. And because it's one of us, it's a human father. He goes, no way, mate. You took all my money. You hurt me. You hurt your family. You embarrassed us. Look at you. You've been cavorting with prostitutes. Look at you. You're covered with pig slime. You stink. And so he says, go away. Because that's our allegiance. That's our love. Oh, sorry. You guys have not pulled me up. What? <laughs> no that's not what we see is it while he was still a long way off his father saw him was filled with compassion for him he ran to his son and threw his arms around him pig slime and all kissed him what kind of allegiance is this (laughs) It is the allegiance of God. Consider the allegiance of God. The allegiance of God that refuses to give up on a treacherous son. Is his allegiance returnable and reliable? Absolutely. Absolutely reliable. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. This is Jesus talking about God, God the Father. You ever imagine God filled with compassion? I know we talk about God as love, but just think about that word compassion. It generally means to have, to have pity, to have empathy, to have understanding. He knows. He is the ultimate allegiant. And you think about the cross, right? You've got all these unallegiance. You've got Judas who betrays Jesus. You've got Pilate. You've got the soldiers who whip and scourge and spit on him. You've got the disciples who just run away. Where's their allegiance? It's pathetic and small and fickle and rubbish. And yet Jesus, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Even with nails through his, through his wrist and, and through his feet and an incredible excruciating pain that we don't even understand. Father, forgive them. What kind of allegiance is that? 
kind of allegiance is that? It's off the scale, isn't it? It's, it's completely recalibrating love as we understand it. It's completely recalibrating allegiance. I'll show you mathematically. Did a whole bunch of mathematical equations to come up with this. Okay, so you can see the bar chart I've put up there. The top one is human love for family. And then in general, and then other human love. And you can see human love for family must be, what, the most noble, the best we've got as humankind, wouldn't it be? Would anyone disagree with that? You know, your love of property, your love of ice cream, it's, it's down there. Love for family, love that a husband has for a wife, wife for a husband, children, so forth, parents, that's got to be, wow, it's got to be up there. So I'll put that as 100%. That, that was quite a formula to get that. And I'm not a maths guy. 100% capacity, the rest of it's down at about 1%. Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> There's other loves, of course, but let's say that this is the biggest, the grandest, the most special love that you can have. But then the Bible comes along and it says weird things. It says, we love because he first loved us. So I take that to mean the only love that we really have that's worth a jot is the love that he gives us, which then sort of flows out to us, to other people. And his love, because it's so grand, so big, so magnificent, we just talked about that, the love of the father in the lost son, which is really the treacherous son, it's really a parable of the finder, the, the love of Jesus on the cross, it's love recalibrated. Like, we have to do some more maths. We have to change the scale a little bit. Okay? So we've got human love at 100%. That's the best kind of love you can have. Jesus knows that's the best kind of love you can have. That's why he chose it. He could have said, you've got to hate your property. We would have gone, good, yeah, that's easy to do. You know, you've got to hate, you got to hate your work. Well, that's easy. Most people hate their work anyway. Got to, you, no, he chooses the very thing that he knows is probably throughout time and throughout all cultures going to be very valuable, love of family. And he goes, I want you to, this is what I think he's saying here, I want you to rescale so what happens when we rescale? <laughs> so I, I, again, it was, a, it was a comprehensive mathematical equation, trust me. So I've gone from zero to 100, and I've gone, must be at least 10 million. You know, God's scale of love must be at least 10 million, wouldn't it be? I mean, you think about taking nails, what kind of God does that? Mathematically, I could show you later. No, I can't. <laughs> you know what I'm doing though, don't you? I'm saying that if our scale is 100%, and then we flip it around, and hopefully it flipped around nicely. Can you even see human love for family on that scale now? It's invisible. God's love, love scale, recalibrated, is out at 10 million. And when we now compare his love at 10 million to our 100%, you can't even see it. It's almost like hate. What kind of love is this? What kind of allegiance is this that the Father has for us, that the Son has for us? I mean, when he says, I want you to hate your family compared to what you do with me, what he's really saying is, you know what? That love that you have for your family, it's just fickle and small. It's nothing compared to the love that I have. And if you would love me, and we know this from other verses, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That kind of love is the love that your family actually needs. Yes, absolutely. If they were to begin to turn you away from Jesus, turn you away from God, you must say, no, 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 no. My allegiance is to God. And you know what? My allegiance to God, him being first, 
is actually going to be a lot better for you because that's the kind of love you need. You don't need my fickle love. I could turn away from God now. I could give you my love and it's going to fail. It's going to become dysfunctional. It's going to become entropic and you're going to be worse off for it. The best thing we can all do as human beings is look to the one to 10 million scale of, lo- of, of, of the love of God. Love is completely recalibrated. So how do we put all this together? If anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me, understand that allegiance to God is not like allegiance to your work, to your property, or even to your family. Our allegiance, if it ever comes to it, is to God above all other things. Understand that the divine love completely rescales our love. So when God says that the greatest commandments are, or Jesus says the greatest commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, love your neighbour yourself. And we're told that we love because he first loved us. We are like big, open, empty vessels that need to be filled with that one to 10 million love. And that's what the world needs. That's what you need. That's the kind of allegiance that you need. The mega allegiance of God. Our love's so human and fickle. His love is off the scale. His love is off the scale. You like that little bar chart 3D? Off the scale. And we know it because of the cross. We know his allegiance is off the scale because of the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That comes from the cross. It's off the scale. It's a life-giving love. It's a love you need. It's a love your family needs. It's a love the world needs. They don't, the world doesn't need this paltry little love that you see on TV or this paltry little love that is given through books and so forth and podcasts, it needs the love of God. It needs the recalibrated love of God flowing firstly to each other. Sorry, firstly to God, then to each other, to the world, even to our enemies. Now, this love is so high altitude, it even calls us to love our enemies. Think about that. Jesus says, love your enemies. When you love your enemies, what happens to them? They're not your enemies anymore. That's kind of the point. This is a spectacular love, a spectacular allegiance. Lealtad, true allegiance. So pause and think deeply as we finish. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by allegiance. Stop worrying about whether you believe or not. Stop worrying about all your doubts and stuff and just pledge your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and never give up. Never, ever pledge your allegiance to anything else. Yes, you'll trip and stumble and fall, but every time get up again and pledge your allegiance to Jesus. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by that dependence on God's recalibrated love, but they shall live by allegiance to him. We're going to remember him now in communion. We're going to remember his allegiance to us. This is a table of allegiance. It flows both ways. You don't have to be perfect. You don't actually have to be sinless to come to this table like other gods would demand. You don't even have to go and make animal sacrifices and things like that. All you have to do is pledge your allegiance to him by coming to the table and partaking, by getting up off your seat and partaking. And then let that be a picture of the rest of your life, getting up, Pledging allegiance to him into Monday morning, into Tuesday morning, into Wednesday morning. And know that as you drink and as you eat, 
This is his pledge of allegiance to you. It's a, it's a pledge of allegiance, a living pledge of allegiance. And as I'm, before we come to the table, something heavy, something heavy on my heart. I feel as many times there are contaminants and, and weights that we're all kind of bearing and maybe there's a purpose in that from God, but some of it is not. Some of it's just not. And it interrupts your allegiance to God, it contaminates it. It, 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 it distorts your thinking. So when I pray and we commit this time to the Lord, I want you to pray with me. And if, if God convicts, then hold nothing back. Repent, turn to him, pledge allegiance to him, do what it takes. And what it takes is give up on whatever it is that's holding you back. Just go, no, I want you, Lord. Nothing can come between you and your and you and your Lord. Nothing, Father. These are heavy words and words that are provocative and words that pierce to the soul and, and and even maybe make us irritated or maybe they make us angry or maybe they just make us confused and befuddled. But one thing we know, because of the cross, even if we don't understand this passage clearly, is that your allegiance to us is profoundly. Grand, it's infinite, it is off the scale. And so as we come to you now and remember your allegiance to us through this table, Lord, again, I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. You would alert us to those things that are within us. We would get curious about them and we'd bring them to you, Lord, so that we might be allegiance. Lord, we saw before that we can't just be seen to be allegiant when it's easy or when there's words flowing out of our mouth. No, no, no. When it's hard, when it's difficult or when we're just bored, Lord, let there be allegiance seen in us from people around us, from our children, if we have children. And again, Lord, I confess and I ask, oh Lord, that in my own heart, there would be 100% allegiance for you. It's just a small cup, Lord, that I can bring in terms of commitment but I want to bring it and I want it to be filled with the love that comes from you and the allegiance that comes from you. Help us to be a church that lives by faith, that lives by allegiance to you. Help us, O Lord. Thank you, Father, now as we come before you for this cup, for this bread that is so deep and profound and signifies so much. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for shedding your blood, for having your body broken. Thank you for your allegiance to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to come forward, take of the bread, uh, hold the cup and we'll drink it together.